0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio Production. Please visit garynorth.com slash freebooks to read along. He Shall Have Dominion, A postmillennial Eschatology by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Narrated by... Aidan McGuire. Copyright, Kenneth L. Genery Jr., 1992. In memory of two valiant servants of Christ, Dr. Cornelius Van Til, who taught me to think as a Christian, and Dr. Lorraine Botner, who taught me to hope as a Christian. Christ shall have dominion from the Psalter, 1912. Based on Psalm seventy two Christ shall have dominion over the land and sea, Earth's remotest region shall his empire be. They that wilds inhabit shall their worship bring, kings shall render tribute, nations serve our king. When the needy seek him he will mercy show, yea, the weak and helpless shall his pity know. He will surely save them from oppression's might for their lives are precious in his holy sight. Ever and forever shall his name endure, long as suns continue it shall stand secure. In him forever all men shall be blessed, and all nations hail him King of King confessed. Unto God Almighty joyful Zion sings, he alone is glorious, doing wondrous things. Evermore ye people bless his glorious name. His eternal glory through the earth proclaim. Forward by Gary North So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Isaiah 55.11 King James Version The gospel message of personal salvation is this. Eternal life is by God's grace through saving faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. When a Christian shares this gospel message with anyone, he sends out God's holy word. This word never returns to God empty. Sometimes it saves, sometimes it damns. What is the legal basis of this message of eternal life? It begins with history. Jesus Christ, who was both a perfect man and and the incarnate Son of God came down from heaven into history, perfectly met gods standards of righteousness, suffered injustice at the hands of unrighteous men, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Any objections so far? I hope not. Then what about eternal life? It also begins in history. Those people who believe and publicly confess in this life that Jesus Christ's representative legal work of redemption is their only legal claim to mercy before God, both now and in eternity, are saved, assuming that they continue in this profession of faith until their physical death. Once a person is saved by God's judicial declaration of not guilty, i.e. justification, he remains saved but the internal and external evidence of the legal fact of this salvation is a person's continuing belief in the gospel message. Those who refuse to believe this message are lost. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3.36 God's grace and wrath both begin in history. This means that Jesus' work of redemption in history is twofold reconciliation and condemnation. Same work, two effects. Same gospel, two effects. This twofold aspect of the gospel reflects the twofold aspect of God's judgment blessing and cursing. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. This means that whenever a Christian shares the message of, the, of God's reconciliation through Jesus Christ, he is also sharing the message of God's condemnation by Jesus Christ. There is no escape from God's 2 judgment. The threat of condemnation is unavoidable. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Matthew 10, 34. If the recipient of the gospel message fails to respond in faith, he is worse off than before he heard the gospel. As in the parable of the two evil servants, the one who knew better will receive greater punishment. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes." For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Luke 12, 47-48 As surely as there is a heaven and hell, Christ's gospel reconciles some and condemns others. The Gospel's Effects in History When a person is legally reconciled to God, this changes the kind of person he is. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This transformation is both judicial and moral. It happens all at once. But its effects do not happen all at once. As in the case of a newborn baby, it takes time in order for the new person in Christ to mature spiritually. It takes time, as the Bible says, to work out the salvation that is ours in fear and trembling. It is all sanctification, God's sovereign act of setting us apart from the world morally. But there are three aspects of this sanctification, even though they constitute one process. Theologians speak of definitive sanctification, the complete moral perfection that we receive by grace at the moment when we are saved, and progressive sanctification, the working out in history of the moral perfection that is in principle ours already by grace. There is also final sanctification, the perfection that we receive by grace after the resurrection at the end of history. It is all sanctification. It is all by grace, ordained from the, from the beginning, including our good works. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We can see this definitive, progressive, final process in operation in the first chapter of Genesis. God created the world in six days. At the end of each day he pronounced his work good. God saw that it was good, occurs repeatedly in the chapter. God's daily work was good in the morning, It was good all day long, and it was good in the evening. At the end of six days, his work was complete. It, too, was good. More than good, very good. Genesis 1.31 Work completed is better than work just begun. If there were not sin in the world, everything we do would be like that. All good, but getting better all the time. Forever. This is what life will be like after the resurrection for all those saved by grace through faith. From the first thing's creation to the final thing's judgment, and everything in between, it would all be good. Of course, there is sin in this world. There is perpetual conflict in history between good and evil, God versus Satan, angels versus demons, covenant keepers versus covenant breakers, eternal life versus eternal death. The question that we need to get answered correctly is this. Is the principle of evil more powerful in history than the principle of good. Christians know that Satan is surely no match for God in terms of power. History is not the same some sort of cosmic arm wrestling match between God and Satan. If it were, God would win 10 rounds out of 10. But the primary issue in history is not power. The primary issue is ethics. This does not mean that history does not involve questions of power. It does. It means that the questions of power are subordinate to questions of ethics. Might does not, and in of itself, make right. Agreed? But there is this nagging question. Is might in some way an outcome of right, or an aspect of right? To put it another way, is might always actively opposed to right? Put yet another way, must right eventually produce might? Or does right eventually produce weakness? By eventually, I do not mean overnight. I mean over long periods of time put in the language of modern economics do the good get richer and the bad get poor over time or is it the other way around the bible has the has an answer but i have said unto you ye shall inherit their land and i will give it unto you to possess it a land that flow, floweth with milk and honey i am the lord your god which has which have separated you from other people leviticus 20:24 20, and Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. Deuteronomy 31, seven. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. Psalms 25.13 for doers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 9 But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Psalm thirty-seven eleven. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. Psalm 37, 22 Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Psalm 37, 34 And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and of Judah an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Isaiah 65, 9 Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5 this process of inheritance culminates in final judgment. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34 The biblical principle is easy to state. Righteousness is the foundation of inheritance. The point is, this process does not apply only to final judgment. It is definitive and definitive progressive and final. It is therefore historical. Eschatology. Now we come to the topic of this book, eschatology. Eschatology is that part of systematic theology which deals with final things. As I hope to show in this foreword, only very recently has Protestant evangelical eschatology begun to deal with the first things about the last things we have not had a developed, comprehensive, exegetically defended presentation of exactly how the Church of Jesus Christ is required by God to conduct itself ethically as it moves from here and now to those last things. Nor have we had a detailed presentation of exactly what the Church should expect to happen along the way if it conducts itself according to God's ethical requirements, or what will happen when it refuses to do so. But that was then, and this is now. He shall have dominion remedies the problem, and does this comprehensively, exegetically, and in a style that is easy to follow for the reader who pays attention. It fills the gap as no other book has so far. Take a look at the book's contents. There are a lot of Bible verses cited, thousands. There are a lot of footnotes to books and articles. It had to be this way. Dr. Jennery is arguing for an ancient and respected view of eschatology, post-millennialism. This places him at a disadvantage. There have not been many theologians in the 20th century who have held this view of the comprehensive future success of the gospel. This was not the case a century ago, but it is the case today. Thus, he comes before an audience that is disinclined to believe him. He has, co- he has to overcome this resistance. Like, like a conservative college student taking an exam from a liberal professor, he has to outperform the liberal students in the class in order to get the same grade. He is also doing his best to overcome a lot of misinformation that has been taught in conservative seminary classrooms for many decades. He knows he has to tend to two of them, one dispensational and the other amillennial. Although Dr. Jennery has made the postmillennial position clear in previous books, and although the Institute for Christian Economics has sent out copies of these books free of charge to offending faculties, the same misinformation continues to be presented in the classroom to vulnerable, trusting students. I much prefer the word lies to misinformation since this gets across to the reader what is really going on in seminary classrooms but I am trying to be a Christian gentleman since Dr. Gentry is. By carefully documenting everything that he says about the Bible, Dr. Gentry does his best to gain the reader's confidence in what he is saying. In documenting with footnotes what he says that other theologians have written, he is doing the, he is doing the same. Any reader who thinks Dr. Jennery's exaggerating has been given proof of the truth of what he is saying. The critic can read the verbatim citation in the text or check the original source, whether it is a Bible verse or a quotation from a book or an article. This will not persuade many contemporary critics of postmillennialism. The price of conversion is high, but it will silence those with with any integrity. Dr. Jennery has followed my long-term strategy, Stuff the Critics' Mouths with Footnotes. He has has expended considerable effort to accomplish the following goals. 1. To persuade the reader that his analysis is correct. 2. To provide supporting evidence for every statement. 3. To avoid exaggeration. 4. To to present a positive case for what he believes. 5. To summarize accurately the arguments against his position. 6. To refute the major critics of post 7. To present the implications of his position. And 8. To state the implications of rival positions. This is why the book is so long. I know of no book that presents the case for any view of eschatology that is equally painstaking. He covers every base. Notice too, his book has a positive aspect and a negative aspect. As with the gospel, this book has a twofold goal, reconciliation and condemnation. There is no escape from these goals. When we share the gospel, we are bringing God's covenantal lawsuit, just as Jonah brought it before the people of Nineveh. This lawsuit offers blessings and cursings. Therefore, he shall have dominion is designed to achieve the following results. One, to give confidence and greater information to those who already believe in his general position. Two, to persuade those who have not yet made up their minds. Three, to persuade those who are still open to new evidence. And four, to silence the critics. An honest critic, if he goes into print against he shall have dominion, should do the following. 1. Show how Gentry has generally misinterpreted biblical eschatology, i.e. demonstrate a pattern misinterpretation. 2. Provide several examples of this pattern. 3. Refer the reader to equally detailed and equally comprehensive studies in eschatology that offer biblical solutions to the problems that Gentry raises. 4. Show how Gentry either ignored dismissing book or completely misrepresented it. While a short book review cannot match Gentry's massive documentation, the reviewer had better be able to point the reader to a, book or bo- to a book or books of equal or greater exactness, as he shall have dominion. If he fails to do the third task, suggest an exegetically superior book. He is implicitly admitting that Gentry has offered the most exegetically impressive case that anyone has made so far. My belief is that no reviewer will publicly identify the definitive book on eschatology. This would involve too much commitment on his part. No reviewer today trusts any book on eschatology unless it is his own. But reviewers rarely have the chutzpah to say this in print. So Gentry wins. This leads me to a discussion of the state of eschatological writing in this. The final decade of the second millennium after the life, death, and resurrection ascension of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity, the perfect son of man. The year 2000 is fast approaching, yet the church has not done its eschatological homework. To prove this statement, I need to go into a brief history of a long series of inclusive debates over the earthly future of the church to explain why he shall have dominion is so important. I need to show what has preceded it. An Ancient Accusation He shall have dominion defends theonomic or covenantal postmillennialism. More than once, some critic of Christian Reconstruction in general, and postmillennialism in particular, has confronted me with this statement. There has never been an exegetical case made for post My answer is always the same. What about Roger Campbell's? The critic, critic's answer is always the same. I've never heard of Roger Campbell. Roger Campbell is a Canadian layman and businessman. He wrote Israel and the New Covenant in the early 1950s. It was published in 1954 by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company. These were the years before the Genesis Flood in 1961 and Competent Counsel in, in 1970, provided by PR with a, writer, with a wider market and a lot more income. Campbell's book did not receive a great deal of attention. Reformed Calvinist theological books written by businessmen rarely do, a, late, a lesson that I have personally learned painfully and expensively. Campbell's book is a masterpiece, short chapters, tightly written, filled with Bible verses, and clear exposition. It is a little over 350 pages long, so the average reader has no excuse for not finishing it. The book's preface was written by O.T. Alice, one of the greatest Old Testament scholars of all time, author of The Five Books of Moses, 1943, and Prophecy in the Church, 1945 a devastating exegetical critique of dispensationalism that has yet to be answered in equal or greater detail, almost half a century after its publication. Contrary to a widely held opinion, Alice was a postmillennialist, not an amillennialist, a true heir of the theology of the old, pre-1929 Princeton Theological Seminary, including its eschatology. This is why he was so enthusiastic about Israel and the New Covenant, The book went out of print in the late 1960s. It was reprinted jointly by PR and Geneva Divinity School Press in 1981. It is again out of print, but this is not to say that it was never in print, which is why the critics are wrong when they assert that there has never been an exegetical case for postmillennialism. They are wrong for many other reasons. There have been many presentations of various aspects of postmillennialism over the years. There is David Brown's Christ's Second Coming, Will It Be Premillennial, published in 1842 and reprinted in 1990. There is the postmillennial inter- interpretation of Romans 11, the conversion of the Jews which will launch a great era of God's blessing on the church. This interpretation has appeared repeatedly in Calvinist expositions, such as in the commentaries by Robert Haldane, Charles Hodge, and John Murray. There is a, hu- there is a huge... Commentary on the Prophecies of Isaiah by Princeton Seminary Theologian J.A. Alexander, which is not well known because of its enormous bulk and detailed argumentation. There are, the, there are the theological writings of B. Benjamin B. Warfield, another Princeton Seminary Theologian, who carried on the Princeton eschatology until his death in 1921. There is Lorraine Botner's book, The Millennium, 1958, which presents a defense of the traditional Princeton eschatology, as well as critique of Amillennialism and Premillennialism. There is J. Marklis' Kicks, An Eschatology of Victory, 1971. There is R.J. Rush Thy Kingdom Come, 1970. Last, but hardly least, there is David Shilton's Paradise Restored, 1985. The Days of Vengeance, 1987. And The Great Tribulation, 1987. Some scholars would include Gerhardus Voss in the list. There also have been lesser-known defenders throughout the 20th century. Gentry mentions some of them in chapter 2. One thing is sure, postmillennialism, contrary to Alva J. McLean's 1956 assertion, has not disappeared. What has disappeared are systematic, detailed defenses of dispensationalism written by theologians, teaching, and dispensational seminaries. An incomplete case for every previous position. It is true that there, are, there has not been a recent, definitive, comprehensive, detailed exegetical presentation of the case for postmillennialism. A book about which large numbers of postmillennialists have said with confidence, yes, here is our book, sink this and you will have seriously damaged your position. What needs to be pointed out is that postmillennialists are in no worse shape in this regard than historic premillennialists, dispensational premillennialists, and amillennialists. The fact is, none of the four major Protestant eschatological positions has been defended exegetically by a large body of scholarly comprehensive books. All eschatological positions in the 20th century have rested on a comparative handful of books that at best sketch the broad exegetical case for their respective positions. None of these books has developed a comprehensive worldview based on a particular system, I exempt here the Christian Reconstructionists who have been self-conscious about the comprehensive nature of their system, which is why the Reconstructionists have made so many enemies in so many camps. I need to suggest something. What I am about to say should not be very controversial. It is this. Biblical eschatology provides God's people with a philosophy of history. Any objections? Any cries of, This is an outrageous exaggeration? No. Fine. Let me add a colory. Any suggested eschatological system that does not offer a philosophy of history that is theologically consistent with the suggested system of interpretation, it is it is in a complete state. This has long been the situation facing every traditional view of eschatology: no public philosophy of history until now. Three key questions. Let me ask. You, let me ask you three questions. First, do you hope? that your work on earth will leave a positive legacy to future generations, no matter how small the legacy is, even if no one in the future remembers who you were or what you did. Of course you do. Second, does God's word return to him void? No. Third, as a covenant keeper, can you legitimately expect that your good works and good deeds will have, even, uh, will have more impact in the future than your evil words and evil deeds? I am not speaking merely of building up treas- treasures in heaven. I am speaking also of your legacy and history to earthly heirs. I am speaking of inheritance, in the broadest sense. If you answer yes, I think you have the right attitude about yourself and your work in God's kingdom. If you answer no, I think you are in need of professional Christian counseling. You are headed for a mental crisis. First, you have a problem with your lack of self-esteem, and covenant keepers have a right to self-esteem as legally adopted as sons of God. John one twelve. Second, you have a problem with your lack of confidence regarding God's willingness to bless your work. You have neglected God's promise. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said, I said indeed that my, thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, from them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 1 Samuel 2.30 the three questions I have asked here will represent with respect to your legitimate expectations about historical outcome of your personal efforts also need to be asked with respect to Christianity in general, the kingdom civilization of God. When we begin to seek Bible based answers to these three questions regarding the kingdom of God and history, we have, necess- we have necessarily raised the issue of a biblical philosophy of philosophy of history. Each of the major views of eschatology has a specific philosophy of history. This connection is not always discussed in public. In most cases, the implications of eschatology for a philosophy of history are implicit rather than explicit. Since the defenders of the various positions tend not to discuss these implications, but there is no escape from these, those implications. There is no eschatological neutrality. This is one of the themes, and he shall have dominion. Historic premillennialism, Historic premillennialists are not dispensationalists. They do not believe in a coming secret rapture or the supposed seventh-year absence of the church from the earth after the return of Jesus to rapture the church into heaven. They believe that Jesus will come back to the earth to rule for a thousand years before the final judgment. They believe that the Great Tribulation is still in the future. It will precede the return of Christ to set up his kingdom. They are are therefore post Tribulation lists. There are not many historic premillennialists these days. Two centuries ago, there were far more people who held this position. In the late 19th century, the Baptist Calvinist Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a well-known historic premillennialist, although his language was often very optimistic with respect to the spread of the gospel, and he believed in the familiar postmillennial doctrine of the future conversion of the Jews. He did not have much use for millennial theories. I am not now going into millennial theories or into any speculation as to dates. I do not know anything about such things, and I am not sure that I am called to spend my time in in such researches. I am rather called to minister the gospel than to open prophecy. In our day, the most famous American historic premillennialist has been the Calvinist Presbyterian author Francis Schaeffer, although he rarely wrote about his Calvinism, his Presbyterianism, or his premillennialism. It does present a problem for historic premillennialists when their most famous representatives prefer not to write about eschatology. Historic premillennialists can appeal to recent books by George Eldon Ladd, but I am aware of no book that discusses the premillennial view of the era of the church prior to Christ's return to earth to set up his kingdom, i.e. no book on the premillennial philosophy of history. The focus of all historic premillennial works is on the second coming, the great future discontinuity that it supposedly will inaugurate the judicially visible phase of Christ's kingdom in history, when Jesus will reign in person to rule on earth. Only then does the idea of Christian civilization become significant in historic premillennialism. Christendom is ignored until after the second coming. Even with respect to this future era, there has never been any detailed discussion of ethical cause and effect in history, i.e. a biblical philosophy of history. There is no detailed discussion of how Jesus Christ will rule on earth through his people. Will there still be politics? Will government be entirely bureaucratic? What laws will Jesus require government to enforce? What penalties will be imposed? What civil judges and juries still hand down sentences? How will appeals be conducted? Will the line of justice seekers in front of Jesus' headquarters be a thousand times longer than the line in front of Moses' tent? Exodus 18.13 We are not told, not by historic premillennialists or dispensational premillennialists. Dispensationalism The question facing historic premillennialism also faces dispensational premillennialism. What is the premillennial philosophy of history? What is the relationship between the faithful preaching of the gospel and the extension of Christ's kingdom in history? What are the cultural effects of this extension of Christ's kingdom in history and why? This is another way of asking... What is the relationship between ethics and authority in history? Is there a predictable cause and effect relationship long-term between personal righteousness and success and personal unrighteousness and failure? What about corporate righteousness? What about corporate unrighteousness? In the spring of 1956, Alva J. McLean, the president of Grace Theological Seminary, wrote an essay for Bibliotheca Sacra, the journal published by the Dallas Theological Seminary. Both schools were and are dispensational. The essay was titled, The Premillennial Philosophy of History. It was only five and a half pages long. Most of it was devoted to criticizing other views. When he had finished with them, he was only half a page remaining for the, to present premillennial view. He did not say what it is. All he said was this. The premillennial philosophy of history makes sense. It lays a biblical and a rational basis for a truly optimistic view of human history. But he never explained what he meant by history. Since dispensationalism teaches that a church will not succeed in converting large numbers of people to Christ in the church age, quote unquote, and that it, it will suffer increasingly persecution until rapture, McLean must have def- have been defining history as the post-rapture millennial dispensation. But this totally new era will begin only after the rapture and after the seven-year Great Tribulation, meaning after every trace of the gospel's effect in history will be blotted out. So, what legitimate optimism does dispensationalism offer to a Christian regarding the long-term historic effects of his life's work? McLean did not say, but the answer is obvious. None. Dispensationalists can appeal to the modern books on eschatology in the Millennial Kingdom written by McLean and John Walvoord. But the major presentation of their eschatological position is found in Things to Come, 1958 by Dallas Seminary Professor J. Dwight Pentecost. Unknown to most readers, he has significantly revised the book in a key area, and in doing so, he has abandoned the traditional dispensational case inevitable defeat of the church in what the dispensationalists call the church age. In the original edition, he argued for the eventual triumph of unbelief in this, in the church age. He wrote that Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, Matthew 13, 31-32, points to the expansion of an evil tree in history, a monstrosity, the parable teaches, that the enlarged sphere of profession has become inwardly corrupt. This is the characteristic of the age. In his exposition of the parable of the leaven, he argued, This evidently refers to the work of a false religious system. This figure is used in scripture to portray that which is evil in character. Page 148. Summarizing, he wrote, The mustard seed refers to the perversion of God's purpose in this age, while the leaven refers to a corruption of the divine agency, the word, through the which this purpose is realized. Page 148. Pentecost's focus here was ethics, the progressive triumph of evil through time during the church age. This would at least serve as the foundation of a dispensational philosophy of history, the defeat of the saints. His book did not provide a developed his philosophy of history, but provided only a starting point. Three decades later, he abandoned even this, but very few of his followers were aware of the fact. The 1987 reprint is not a reprint, but a strategically revised edition. It is nowhere identified as such. Dr. Pentecost had the typewriter carefully re- superimpose a tr- crucial revised section. The switch is almost undetectable, it is a, yet, it is a devastating admi- admission for dispensationalism. Here is his revised exposition of Christ's kingdom during the church age. Mustard seed. This part of the parable stresses the great growth of the kingdom when once it is introduced. The kingdom will grow from an insignificant beginning to great proportions, page one hundred and forty seven. There is not a word about its ethical corruption. Leaven. When leaven is used in scripture, it frequently connotes evil. It uses its use in the sacrifices that represent the perfection of the person of Christ. Leviticus two 1 through three shows that it is not always so used. Here is the here the emphasis is not on leaven as though to be emphasized its character, but rather that the leaven has been hidden in the male thus stressing the way the leaven works when once introduced into the meal. Page 148. In short, there is now no focus on ethics, not one word about any evil effects of either the mustard seed or the leaven. Today his focus is on the growth of the kingdom in history, the post-millennial focus. The parable of the mustard and the leaven the meal then stresses the growth of the new form of the kingdom. Page 148. If Christ's kingdom is not being corrupted in our dispensation, then it is either ethically neutral, the kingdom of God is ethically neutral, or positive. Pentecost's theological problem is obvious. There can be no ethical neutrality. If the necessarily expanding kingdom of Christ is not being steadily undermined by theological and moral perversion, then it must be growing in righteousness. This interpretation is the postmillennial view of the kingdom of God, expansion over time. Matthew 13 is not discussing Satan's kingdom. It is discussing Christ's. Dr. Pentecost has very quietly overthrown the heart and soul of the traditional dispensational system's account of the inevitable progress of evil in this, the unquote, church age. Yet no one inside this dispensational camp has been willing to discuss in public the implications of this radical alteration by Pentecost or explain exactly why it has not, if correct, overthrown the dispensational system. The dispensational system is in transition. Amillennialism. Amillennialism is the most widely held interpretation of prophecy, primarily because Roman Catholics generally hold to it. Although they rarely discuss eschatology, Lutherans also hold to it. Episcopalians, like Roman Catholics, have rarely emphasized eschatology, so amillennialism has won by default. European Calvinists today, which means mainly mainly Dutch Calvinists, have held to it for the last two centuries. They have been the major... expositors of the amillennial system in the 20th century. The amillennialist believes that the ma- next major eschatological event will be the second advent of Jesus Christ at the final judgment. The unified series of events which is called the rapture by dispensationalists is identified by the amillennialist as immediately preceding the final judgment. Like the premillennialists and the postmillennialist, he believed in the coming of Christ in the clouds to whom the living and the dead in Christ will be raised. Like the postmillennialist, but unlike the premillennialist, he does not believe that this unified event will take place a thousand years before the final judgment. It will take place on the day of final judgment. This is to say he denies that there will be any eschatological discontinuity between today and just before the second advent, the final judgment. There will be historical continuity for the gospel. Unlike the postmillennialist, but like the premillennialist, he insists that this is a continu- continuity of, of cultural decline and defeat for Christianity until Jesus comes again. Amillennialist authors have written short books that mix personal eschatology, death, resurrection, and final judgment, with cosmic eschatology, New Testament prophecy, the church, the second advent, the final judgment, and the world beyond. What is conspicuously absent in all of them is the detailed amillennial exposition of the New Testament era, from the fall of Jerusalem in eighty seventy to the second advent. Anthony Hokuma's The Bible and the Future, nineteen seventy nine, attempts this, but not in any systematic or comprehensive exegetical fashion, and it is virtually alone in attempting even this much. This is not to say that all millennialists do not have a philosophy of history, they do, but it is rarely discussed and never developed in detail or used to develop a distinctly all millennial social theory. Let me offer an example of the amillennial approach to questions of the outcome of the gospel in history. There is a book by an amillennialist titled A New Heaven and a New Earth. The title is taken from a biblical eschatological phrase. This phrase appears twice in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.13 and Revelation 21.1, and twice in the Old Testament, Isaiah 65.17 and 66.22. The passage in Isaiah 65 prophesies of a coming era on earth and before the final judgment, since sinners will still be active, in which there will be great external blessings, including very, very long lifespans. Here is the complete passage. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind, but ye be glad and rejoice forever in, in that which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more from thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses, and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Isaiah 65:17 17-27, emphasis added. A postmillennialist can interpret this passage literally. A coming era of extensive millennial blessings before Jesus returns in final judgment. So can a premillennialist, the era after Jesus returns to earth but before final judgment. But the amillennialist cannot admit the possibility of such an era of literal, cultural-wide blessings in history. His eschatology denies any literal, cultural-wide triumph of Christianity in history. Therefore, he has to spiritualize or, alleg- or allegorize this passage. So, how did the author handle this passage? He didn't. He simply ignored it. It isn't in my Bible, he seems to be saying. In a 233-page book on the new heavens and the new earth, there is no discussion of Isaiah 65, 17-23. The scripture index refers the reader to the pages 139 and 175. On page one. 39, there is a reference to Isaiah 60, 65, 17-25, but not one word of commentary. On page 157, there is neither a reference nor a comment. The book is filled with thousands of Bible references, but nowhere does the author comment on the one passage more than any other passage in the Bible that categorically refutes amillennialism. Yet this book is regarded by amillennial theologians as a scholar presentation of this position. There are very few other books that present a detailed exegetical case for amillennialism. Most amillennial discussions of ethical cause and effect in history are limited to the unpleasant conclusion that evil men will get ever more powerful culturally, while the righteous will become progressively weaker culturally. In other words, the progressive sanctification of God's people will lead to their progressive enslavement and isolation from culture. This means that the amillennial view of history rests on a view of ethical cause and effect, in which right makes weakness, and unrighteousness makes might. This conclusion is so unpleasant and despairing, The Amelianists prefer not to discuss it. While which leaves them without like a publicly articulated philosophy of history. Well, the only exception to this is Meredith G. Klein's 1978 essay, in which he argued that God's sanctions in history are ethically random from the human point of view. But since we live in an era in which the church is on de- on the defensive. There can be no legitimate hope in Klein's basis of a comprehensive victory. He has become quite willing to admit this. Historic Postmillennialism In many respects, earlier defenses of postmillennialism also failed to present a case for ethical cause and effect in history. The future era of blessing was seen as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which it surely will be, but not the product also of ethical transformation. God's law and God's covenantal sanctions, blessing, and cursing were ra- rarely discussed, this was especially true of the postmillennialism preached by Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. Except in the writings of 17th century Puritans prior to 1660, postmillennialism has long been stripped of any necessary connection between God's Bible revealed law and God's corporate sanctions in history. This view of God's predictable sanctions in history is an extension of the No New Covenant Backup argument regarding covenant lawsuits. This form of postmillennialism is inherently antinomian, denying the willingness of God to defend his covenant law through the imposition of historical sanctions. Consistent men ask, If God will not apply sanctions, then how can Christians dare to apply them? But if God's judicial sanctions are not applied, then Satan's judicial sanctions will be. There is no judicial neutrality in history. By refusing to acknowledge either God's revealed law or God's predictable corporate sanctions in history, defenders of postmillennialism have generally abandoned a philosophy of history. They have proclaimed a pietistic postmillennialism rather than a covenantal postmillennialism. They have proclaimed Christ's victory in history but without specifying the legal foundations of the kingdom, civilization, of God. The key issue. The key issue. Ethics with historical sanctions. Ethics cannot successfully be divorced from eschatology. But neither can the question of God's sanctions in history. The unified question of ethics and corporate sanctions cannot be evaded. The eschatological issue is this. Do Christians have a legitimate hope for the positive historical effects of their efforts, both personal and corporate, in history? Do their sacrifices really make a difference in history? Of course they make a difference in eternity. This is not a question. Do Christians', do Christians individual and corporate efforts make a positive difference in history? If all that Christians can accomplish in history is to present God's covenant lawsuit against individuals, allowing the Holy Spirit to pull a few people out of the eternal fire, then why should they go to college, except to serve as witnesses to college students? Why should they become lawyers, except to witness to lawyers? Is everything we do or build doomed to destruction, either in some future great tribulation or in the final rebellion of Satan's forces at the end of time? Does everything we, we leave behind get swallowed up by Satan's historically successful kingdom, civilization, should every dollar that Christians spend a day on education above the 12th grade be instead sent to missionaries? Are, are struggling little Christian colleges nothing more than the very expensive dating and marriage broker services? I would have said universities, but evangelicals fundamentalists do not have one, an accredited institution that grants earned PhDs in liberal arts and sciences. Are Christians supposed to live in a cultural ghetto forever, either premillennial or amillennial, praying for the second advent as their only means of escape from historical impotence? The Missing Link A Biblical Philosophy of History What has been been absent in every eschatological camp is a self-conscious presentation of explicitly biblical philosophy of history. There has been no such presentation based on a comprehensive exegesis of the Bible specifically a philosophy of history derived from the biblical doctrine of the last things. In the field of systematic theology, eschatology is obviously the section in which such a discussion should be presented, yet we find no such discussion. This is, to put it mildly, a bit peculiar. This glaring hole in applied eschatology is not something that seminary-based theologians have often discussed in public. Furthermore, A biblical philosophy of history is a necessity for any eschatology that is designed for those still living in this world. The absence of a detailed presentation of a biblical philosophy of history does not keep Christians from having one. They inevitably adopt one. They just do not adopt the one that has been systematically developed anywhere. For example, they have strong opinions about such matters as legitimacy and wisdom of social action in the name of Christ. They have strong opinions on what the church can expect in the future. And the more pessimistic these expectations, the more ready those who hold them are to imagine that the church has very little time remaining. Facing, they believe, the threat of persecution in the future, and facing also, they believe, the inevitable predestined historical irrelevance of their efforts to turn back the satanic tide, Christians who hold to either premillennialism or amillennialism place their hope in a future discontinuous, supernatural escape from the cares of this world, meaning an escape from personal and institutional responsibility in this world. I do not mean that they place their hope in death. I mean they place hope in getting out of life alive. The dispensational rapture or the amillennial second advent is just around the corner. The eschatological concern of evangelical Protestant Christianity in the 20th century has not been on ethics and Christians' responsibility. Ethical cause and effect in history but rather on the transcending of Christians' responsibility through a future divine intervention into history, either to set up Jesus' one-world state bureaucracy, premillennialism, or to remove sinners from history by ending history. The eschatological focus has been on our legitimate, because eschatology is inevitable, escape from our corporate responsibility as Christians. The psychological motivation has been the quest for theological justification for the Christians' escape from any obligation to work to extend the kingdom civilization of God in history, also known as bystander Christianity. Eschatology has been employed to justify retroactively the fact that the Protestant church since 1660 has not accomplished much in the way of presenting an explicitly biblical alternative to the competing worldviews of the many forms of covenant breaking. There is a reason for this lack of an alternative, a missing link. This missing link is a theory of cause and effect in history. Ethical cause and effect... Historical Sanctions The missing eschatological link has been a theory of New Covenant history that is forthrightly based on ethical cause and effect. The Old Covenant saints had such an ethics-based theory of history, which is outlined in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Blessings in history for those who obey God's Bible-revealed law and cursings in history for those who disobey God's Bible-revealed law. Today, the premillennialists and the amillennialists agree. Such a system of ethical cause and effect no longer operates in New Covenant history. Thus, biblically speaking, ethical cause and effect either leads nowhere in particular, God's random sanctions in history, or more widely believed, it leads to the cultural defeat of Christianity in history until Jesus comes again in the person to judge his enemies. This is an odd view of history, theologically speaking. We know that God backed up his prophets in the Old Covenant era, when they when they brought a covenantal lawsuit, God would pr- pr- prosecute it. But we are assured this is no longer the case in the new covenant. The church has, can no longer successfully invoke such divine power in history. Question: If Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God has left His church even more powerless than the church was in Mosaic Israel. Then what have been the culturally significant effects, if any, of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of God? Both the amillennialists and the premillennialists avoid answering this question at all costs, for they keep coming up with this highly embarrassing answer: uh, almost no effects whatsoever. This is just too embarrassing to admit in public. They must be pushed and pushed hard to get them to admit it. I do the pushing. The postmillennialists insist that Jesus' ascension to the throne of God is this transcendent mark of his absolute sovereignty over history. The postmillennialist argues that Jesus will not leave his throne to return to earth until all his enemies are subdued, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. But supernatural postmillennialism has not been taken seriously in the 20th century. Today, theonomic postmillennialism raises two very divisive issues, personal and corporate responsibility and legitimate avoidance thereof. To take this eschatology seriously, raises questions regarding the church's responsibility for the transformation of culture. This raises even more questions regarding the level of personal responsibility in the lives of Christians. Christians today have fear what the answers might be, so they prefer to avoid considering the biblical case for theonomic postmillennialism. The standard response to covenantal theonomic postmillennialism is to argue that the world cannot improve ethically until Jesus comes again to rule with a rod of iron. But why should this be the case? How strong is Satan's rod in the New Covenant history? I know of no premillennialist who argues that Satan must sit on an earthly throne in order for his kingdom to be manifested in history. They all understand that Satan's kingdom is manifested representatively through his human disciples. Yet they all insist that for Christ's kingdom to be, quote-unquote, truly manifested in history, Jesus Christ must return bodily from heaven and to sit on an earthly throne, probably in Jerusalem. Question, Why does the Son of God need to be bodily present in order to enable his human servants to rule effectively in history, when the human servants of the devil, who was defeated definitively at Calvary, have no problem whatsoever in ruling over Christ's representatives in history? To put it starkly, why has the sending of the Holy Spirit left Christianity culturally impotent in history? The Amillennialists and Premillennialists refuse to respond to this question. One can hardly blame them. It is so much easier to sit quietly and pray silently that the postmillennialists who keep asking it will either go away or else Jesus will come again, thereby shutting their mouths at the postmillennialists. But neither event takes place. The postmillennialists keep asking the question and Jesus remains on his heavenly throne. The amillennialists and the premillennialists agree. Christians can leave nothing of significance behind that will survive. The horrors of the satanic oppression that inevitably lies ahead. Only the institutional church will survive, and a besieged and shrinking institution it will be until Jesus comes again. Gentry says that they are wrong. Gentry says that the Bible says they are wrong. It is now incumbent on premillennial and amillennial theologians to refute Gentry. Point by point, verse by verse, silence is no longer golden. The link is no longer missing. Dr. Gentry has already defended exegetically the comprehensive implications and applications of Jesus' great commission. In doing so, he has offered the culturally retreatist and defeatist theology of pietism its most detailed exegetical challenge in the 20th century. He has also documented in, in exhaustive detail the dating of the book of Revelation before AD 70. This has removed the most significant criticism of the preterist, past tense, historically completed interpretation of the book of Revelation. The preterists argue that all the prophecies regarding the Great Tribulation were, filled, were fulfilled, with the fall of Jerusalem in 8070. The preterist interpretation was easily criticized by those who argued the Book of Revelation was written in 8096. This counter-argument can no longer be easily sustained. Demolished it in before Jerusalem fell. So far, there has been no detailed published ref- refutation. Now, Gentry comes with an ex- explicitly theonomic case for postmillennialism. No longer is the question of ethical cause and effect stripped out of postmillennialism. God's Bible-revealed laws and their appropriate sanction, san- sanctions in history lie at the very heart of this discussion of postmillennialism. The reader needs to understand that this book is the most is the first detailed exegetical presentation of covenantal theonomic postmillennialism. It is not just that Gentry argues for the continuing authority of God's law that might be called bare bones theonomy. It is not that he just. Uh, he argues for postmillennialism, what may be called bare-bones postmillennialism, what is significant about he shall have dominion is that it links together the, these two points by means of a covenantal doctrine of God's predictable historical sanctions in history. Dendry defends the continuation of God's sanctions in history as a theologically necessary component of postmillennialism's doctrine of the comprehensive triumph of the kingdom of God in history. Without this link, there can be no ethics-based Christian philosophy of history, paraphrasing the philosopher Emmanuel Kant. Theonomy without postmillennialism is impotent. Postmillennialism without theonomy is blind. Theonomic postmillennialism is a unified system. This is why he shall have dominion is so important. From this point forward, this book will represent the position known as theonomic postmillennialism. All future expositions in the name of this position will have to build self-consciously on he shall have dominion. As the old advertisement used to put it, accept no substitutes. Gentry got to the finish line first. To the victor belong so the spoils. This will not win him cheers from the also-rans. The task of the critics. Consider the wealth of documentation in this book. It will not be sufficient for a critic to conclude in some two-page review that Gentry's book just does not prove his case. If anyone tries this stunt, the global reader should ask, then what theologian has pro- produced an equally comprehensive book to defend a rival position? At this stage of history, approaching the year 2000, to refute Gentry's book will require a comprehensive position, positive case, representing a rival eschatology with equal or greater diligence. The critics should not expect to be able to refute something this comprehensive with anything less comprehensive and detailed. I must remind the critics of an old political slogan, you can't beat something with nothing. First, let me remind the reader of the disastrous attempts so far by a few theologians to refute both theonomy and postmillennialism. Westminster Seminary's Attack, Theonomy and Reformed Critique, 1990, called forth my book, Westminster's Confession, 1991, Bonson's No Other Standard, 1991, and a collection of essays, Theonomy and an Informed Response, 1991. In it, Gentry refuted unmillennialist Richard Goffin's feeble essay, Point by Point, Gentry had already already refuted in great detail the embarrassingly weak criticisms of postmillennialism that were set forth by Reverend Thomas D. Ice in Ice's section of the co-authored and ill-fated book *Dominion Theology: Blessing or Curse*. After Gentry finished his polite, scholarly dissection, second and more important, premillennial and amillennial critics will not be able to appeal successfully to some well-developed body of theological opinion in order to buttress their rejection of Gentry's thesis. There is no such body of published opinion. The footnotes are not there. Each respective school of eschatological opinion has been flying exegetically by the seat of their pants for over a century. Dispensationalism appeared only around 1830. There has been no integrated exegetical presentation by any school of eschatological opinion that 1. offers a detailed Bible-based defense of its position and 2. applies its eschatological viewpoint to to the relationship among the church, Christian culture, and anti-Christian rivals, and the future effects of the gospel prior to the second coming of Christ. Such a book does not exist in any of the rival camps. In short, there is not a single eschatological treatise in any of the rival competing camps, let alone dozens of treatises which answers Francis Schaeffer's ethical question, how shall we then live? He did not answer it either. This is why He Shall Have Dominion is unique. It brings together three themes— biblical ethics, gods, historical sanctions, and the future of Christianity. It provides what no previous book on eschatology has provided, namely a theologically integrated system of eschatology, ethics, sanctions, and prophecy. Conclusion From this time forward, as surely as critics of postmillennialism will have to respond in detail to Chilton's days of vengeance, so will they also have to respond to Gentry's He Shall Have Dominion. In my publisher's preface to Chilton's book, I predicted that critics will not be able to handle Chilton's theologically or stylistically. Since that time, I have yet to see a published expectation to my prediction. The, that book's one weakness, Chilton's failure to defend in detail the pre-8070 authorship of Book of Revelation was solved by Gentry before Jerusalem fell. I now offer a similar prediction about this book. The critics will not be able to handle Gentry theologically. This book may not silence them, but it will reduce them to a murmuring in private conversations. In public, they will will have to play the familiar academic game of Gentry? Who's Gentry? A few theologians may have to take up my challenge, although I doubt it. If they are to look their students in the eye and tell them, Chilton's Paradise Restored, Chilton's Days of Vengeance, Gentry's Before Jerusalem Fell, and Gentry's shall have Dominion are without theological merit. They must first prove their case in print, where Gentry can respond. Murmuring in private conversations is not an academic argument. Neither are authoritative proclamations by seminary professors who, to captive students behind closed doors. Neither is the tried and true refrain, I shall not dignify such shoddy and amateurish scholarship with- to a reply. Theonomy is now too well established for that response to work. Theonomists have too many books on the table. Critics, it's time to reply. Silence in the face of this book and the others is no longer a wise strategy. The word is getting out. The brighter seminary students are figuring out what is going on. Representatives of the various schools of eschatological opinion had better start producing their own comprehensive books on these topics. It is too late for critics to expect a bottle-up bottle up theonomic postmillennialism by ignoring it or murmuring about it in private. If the critics cannot answer these books in print, then the theonomists will win the debate by, the, by default. I have in mind primarily amillennialist critics, and more to the point Calvinists. Historic premillennialism barely exists today, and its public defenders are few. Meanwhile, dispensational premillennialism is a never-ending transition. Its public defenders are mostly writers of paperback books and Bible prophecy. Few of, the, few of them are trained theologians. They are more often accountants, lawyers, or cable television evangelists. Those few defenders of dispensationalism who are academic theologians are either at the end of their careers, wall of word, Pentecost, Rary, no longer willing or able to interact with academic critics, or else they are younger seminary professors who are involved in an on-campus, semi-private, seemingly never-ending revision of the original dispensational system. They never present anything like an integrated, completed version of their new and improved dispensationalism. They never demonstrate how the traditional dispensational system can be revised without collapsing. They keep tinkering with the unraveling system. They never present a finished product. Younger dispensational seminary professors are well aware that traditional schofield chapter ryrie dispensationalism has become t- defenseless. They just want to keep their jobs. Armenian dispensationalist professors do not need to respond to Calvinistic Christian Reconstructionists in order to keep their jobs, so they, they so they keep silent. Thus, my challenge is directly pri- directed primarily to Calvinistic Amillennialists. My Calvinist seminary professors have a problem: their brighter students read. We theonomists keep picking off these bright students since we write, and not only write, we speak to the burning social issues of our day. Nobody expects dispensational professors to speak with authority to the issues of the day. Their system declares the futility of doing so. Calvinist theologians are expected to, but all millennialism def- offers no blueprints, no solutions, and no earthly hope. Theonomy does. One thing is certain the next time some critic says to me, There has never been an exegetical case made for post millennialism, I shall not reply. What about Roger Campbell's? I shall instead try to sell him a copy of He Shall Have Dominion.